this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey there, it's John Warlow. Listen, if you're brand new to Built to Sell Radio, welcome. It's good to have you along for the ride. We've been doing this show now for five years. I've interviewed literally a different entrepreneur every week for the past five years, and I've taken some of their best practices, their, their tips and tricks and negotiation hacks, and distilled them all into a field guide. It's a book called The Art of Selling your business. And it is a little bit of a recipe card for you to punch above your weight when it comes to negotiating with an acquirer. You can get it at builttosell.com slash selling. Fun story coming up with A.D. Pinar, who built a company called Convergio. Listen to how he was able to increase the value of his business by 35%. Just listen to the strategy he used to gin up the value of his company. He'll also talk about how many companies he went to in his long list of potential acquirers. I think the number may surprise you to some extent. He'll talk about three criteria he used to decide when to sell, a question we get a lot. He'll share some of the mistakes he made in the early days around pricing, which are thought-provoking. The difference between voluntary and involuntary churn and why both numbers are going to be important for any recurring revenue-based company. He'll talk about how he triggered the negotiation process, in particular, the importance of speaking at industry events in your category. Four things that AD looked at other than the value of his company that were important to him when he was evaluating letters of intent. So four intangibles to look for in a letter of intent. How to know, and this was a fun piece, how to know when an acquirer is serious about buying your business versus just kicking the tires. One very specific thing to look for in the title of the person approaching you to know whether they're serious or not. He also talks about how being 100% remote, as we all are these days, impacted some acquirer's view of the value of his company. And one thing that Pinar refused to talk about in the process of the management meetings he went through prior to receiving letters of intent, this is the one thing, the one conversation theme that you absolutely must avoid with a potential acquirer. Here to tell you all about his fantastic exit from Convergio is A.D. Pinar. A.D. Pinar, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. <laughs> Thanks for having me, John. Convergio, what did you guys do? Tell me about this product. Yeah, so Convergio, we built um, email marketing automation for e-commerce brands, um, predominantly Shopify, but also WooCommerce, um, which was the company that I co-founded before I actually got stuck into Convergio. So email marketing for e-commerce brands. So if I sell gym equipment on a website, I'm going to need to market to my pre, like people who bought gym equipment from me before. So somebody buys dumbbells, you know, we want to convince them to buy a squat rack or whatever. Yeah. And, and, and I would need to cultivate that relationship and send email out to those guys. Is that the software that you have? 
Yeah, exactly right. So, so we would essentially cover what I would call the kind of the full spectrum um, of what you should be doing for email marketing as an e-commerce brand. So like all of the automated things from kind of your first time visitor joining your mailing list, you're trying to get you to purchase the first time, um, you know, to kind of you know, sending out periodic newsletters, right, um, on the kind of more manual side. But also things like when you abandon a cart, like sending your reminders, you know, hey, John, there's stuff left in your carts. You really need to kind of exercise more. Here's dumbbells that, you know, should be doing the trick. Right? You're right? fat, like, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, we never went, we, we luckily never went there. I'm sure, you know, some of, some of the brands that use the product, you know, kind of went. But yeah. really like all, all of those things, you know, everything that touched kind of your email, like we would be involved in. And, you know, we try to consolidate all of those things in some kind of intelligent manner and where we actually got started and i think this might be interesting is when i found the company um end of you know 2014 uh it was actually called receiptful as a start before we rebranded to Converge two years later and the original idea was and i had stumbled like in 2014 um i actually stumbled into onto an article that was tweeted by my friend um and now my my coach um, Dan Martel, who's been on your show as well, yeah, that I remember yeah. the story. And he tweeted a link to an article that basically said, email receipts are a missed marketing opportunity. And basically what it proposed was like, you know, the likes of Amazon, they've always included like in your order confirmation, whenever you buy something, you know, here's a squat rack, you're, you know, you're going to need, need a kind of your barbell, right? Mm -hmm. um, so they included that there. It wasn't a new idea, but nobody had built this for smaller merchants right if if someone had it they were probably kind of built this custom and that's where we started so we literally built a very simple product initially uh called receiptful and it just allowed you to um initially actually include a discount coupon for a future purchase into the email receipt and what we pioneered at least in the kind of your shopify ecosystem was the ability to generate that discount coupon uniquely and on the fly so every recipient got a once-off unique discount coupon for them right so it wasn't one of these generic things where it was like you know 80 15 would which would give everyone whom i shared it with 15 percent discount which made um just that kind of because you wanted to incentivize actual users in a way so that's where we actually started and you know from building that product and getting that traction we ultimately got into this kind of broader suite of of tools that became this kind of you know full spectrum you know kind of automated marketing automation system Interesting. I know nothing about Shopify. So Shopify is based in Ottawa, Canada, where I'm from. I'm from Canada, not Ottawa. And like, I see headlines about them all the time. I have no idea what they do. Like, I, I know what Amazon does because I buy from them all. I have no clue what Shopify does. So can you explain in layman's terms what Shopify does and then how you got to be part of their ecosystem? Yeah. So um, at the core, I would say, you know, Shopify is an e-commerce platform, which essentially means that um, they allow you as a merchant, as a seller online to create a website that has a shopping cart um, that allows you to display kind of products and then, you know, it takes orders and you can fulfill those orders, right? Um, that's the kind of the core of it. And I think what Shopify have done really well over the years is they they recognize that like it is impossible for them as a company to build every single thing that every single merchant needs. So they built this really fantastic, um, you know, developer ecosystem and app store experience where, which makes it very easy for a merchant, whether you're a newbie or you're a hundred million dollar brand to actually just go into the app store and say, you know, here's Convergio. 
um, you know, it's got 800, you know, five-star ratings, whatever, like average rating of 4.7, whatever the case is, I, I need email marketing. I'm going to give this a go. Um, so when we, and interestingly enough, and, and again, like the, this hurts me a little bit to this day, right? So, you know, WooCommerce, my my previous company, when we started with Receiptful um, back in the day, the first integration we built with WooCommerce only. And WooCommerce and Shopify are the two biggest e-commerce platforms in the world. Um, and upon kind of, you know, eventually kind of new selling, um, Shopify was about 90% of our business. So we could never, I, I always hope that that kind of your know, li- little bit of nepotism almost within the WooCommerce <laughs> and WordPress ecosystem would help drive more sales there. But for whatever reason, we, we could never, um, you know, kind of make it work. But that's what those those things essentially do. WooCommerce, Shopify, they're, you know, e-commerce platforms that um, essentially feels the kind of independent kind of Amazon sellers. So many sellers that are at Amazon might also have their kind of direct-to-consumer you know, owned channel, which they run on something like a Shopify or a WooCommerce. We talk a lot about something called the Switzerland structure, which is where if you become too dependent on a single partner supplier, it can undermine the value of your company. As you became more and more dominant with Shopify, more and more of your revenue, if I understood correctly, you said 90% of your revenue is coming from yep. Shopify. Yep. How did you guys reconcile how dependent you were on Shopify? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I guess it's a, it's always a little uneasy, right? Um, and I guess the context there, John, is that, you know, WooCommerce was built exclusively on WordPress. Um, and WordPress is obviously slightly different to Shopify in the sense that it's open source, right? So if WordPress ever did something, we would... Uh, we would have had the ability to make some changes, right? Whereas Shopify is 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 a owned kind of closed platform, at least. And if they made some changes that was detrimental to us, like it could pose significant risk. Um, so the risk was there, um, but nothing, you know, in either of those companies for that matter, like ever popped up where I felt that this was, it didn't make sense to build these businesses on these platforms. Um, ultimately, like those platforms, I always, the way I argued it with Shopify, right, was that, and especially after they became a listed company themselves, was that if they were to act in an unreasonable manner to us, right, I would just run to the first kind of, you know, TechCrunch or New York Times reporter. I would give them all the facts and that would kind of, that, that, that sh- would have dented their share price, right? Because a big part of their value was in the app ecosystem, right? So, and I'm not like, not trying to inflate my own ego and, and worth here. Like we were just one of kind of hundreds of kind of app development partners. But point being like, if I think for a company like that, if they don't have a hundred percent track record with regards to how they handle um, the kind of the partners in their ecosystem, they suddenly cre- you know, start creating doubt. And I think the best example we've seen kind of years ago, right, was when Twitter was a flourishing platform, they had an amazing kind of API and developer ecosystem. And then they slowly started clawing back those, those rights. Mm. And all the developers left, right? Which meant that, like, it's, if you look at innovation, you know, Twitter compared to Facebook, and I'm not praising Facebook, I think there's m- many, many flaws there, but they've at least continued to progress the product and make kind of, you know, kind of innovate on things, make progress, like try new things. Whereas Twitter is mostly stagnated for the last couple of years. And a big part of that is they, as I said, they, they totally overstepped their bounds with regards to this partner slash developer ecosystem that they have. So, so that was always my theory in terms of 
trying to quantify that risk. And I said, it, it's a bit of an uneasiness because you know this can change. Sure. Um, but then again, we also just existed because of that platform, right? So I think it's a there's a kind of healthy tension there. Yeah. How big did you get Convergio before you decided to sell in terms of revenue, number of employees, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So by the time we sold, we were, I believe, 14 full-time team members um, and a couple of million dollars ARR. ARR standing for annual, annual recurring, recurring revenue. revenue. So yeah. kind of top line recurring revenue. So a couple yeah. million bucks yeah. in annual recurring revenue, 14 employees. What triggered you to want to sell? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think a couple of things, John. Um, the way I always describe it to people is is, is the following way. Um, I think firstly, you know, a large part of if, if I take the perspective from my family and our financial situation, a large parts of our theoretical kind of wealth and our you know in our financial portfolio got stuck in this business, right? Called conversion. Um, and I was really uneasy about that, right? And it's not, that's not a kind of gun to my head uneasiness, but I was aware of that. And I, I at least, I mean, I, I, I have a finance background, you know, all the way back from you know, to varsity, and I at least understand the basics of diversification, right? So I think that was the kind of the first part of it. The second part of it was really the fact that kind of, you know, as a marketing automation platform, I think I found, we found ourselves in probably the most congested competitive space um, of the market in terms of software, right? It's very congested, very competitive. Um, and I was aware of that. And I, I didn't necessarily know how well we could grow the company and how effectively we could grow the company as an independent, at least. And I think the last bit there, like almost the, um, you know, the, the, the combo there is the fact that I, I never felt that email marketing was my life's work either, right? And I think the literally the combination of those things made me at least say, you know what? Let's put my like let's literally put my hand up and say, hey, we might be interested to sell. What would that transaction actually look like? Um, I want to ex- I want to explore uh, this idea of reaching the kind of top of what you thought you might be able to to do with the company. One of the things that, that, that I, I find curious about being part of an ecosystem like Shopify, and in your case, deriving the majority of your revenue, is, is at, at some point, I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, it would feel very restrictive, like you're at the behest of Shopify. Like if Shopify's traffic grows and they're successful, well, you will in, in, in lockstep benefit. And if Shopify has a bad month or a bad quarter, it's like, what, what do we do? We're kind of at the mercy of their traffic and is was that uh, was that a sentiment that you were feeling when such a big portion of your revenue was coming from that ecosystem no and i think to some extent a big part of our growth was actually riding that wave in a positive sense right so mm-hmm. shopify's growth immediately added almost kind of organic growth for us by just being there right and i think which is actually a negative right because everything we all learn about business growth is you have to find those repeatable, scalable kind of tactics, channels, strategies, et cetera, to keep growing a business, right? And yet those have to change as you kind of level up. And I actually think, um, I mean, we had one major competitor in our space, for example, they were a couple of years ahead of us, I think about three and a half years ahead of us, and they kept raising money, for example. And I knew from a personal 
is kind of slash lifestyle consideration, moralistic consideration. I knew that I didn't want to, you know, keep raising money. We raised a single round of money very early on. Um, and I didn't want to keep playing that venture capital game because it wasn't going to align with the kind of company that I built. So, but with that in mind, knowing that our competitors, regardless of the organic growth and kind of this rising tide that we were all experiencing by just being in the Shopify ecosystem, we probably got our ass kicked by competitors as well. Um, so, and I think it's it's in trying to assess that and then saying like, how much, like how much energy do I have as an independent? How much belief do I have as an independent? Um, and how do I try and then time a good liquidity event that makes sense for kind of everyone here? And so who's the everyone? You mentioned you you raised some VC. Like who, what's the capital structure of the company look like at this point in the game? Yeah. So we so we only raised a single round um, of capital. Um, upon exit, I still had the vast majority of the company, which was in our family office. Um and the other parts of it, um, about 30% of the company was held by, um, probably almost half off, uh, was held by those early investors, um, as well as team members. So that's mm -hmm. that's really the kind of the everyone there. Um, I like I would also not be almost kind of um, disingenuous by saying that, you know the, you know the ultimate deal. Whilst everyone got the same or similar-ish terms the extent of the exit was only going to be life-changing for me as a kind of the, the, the vast majority um, kind of holder of the shares. Um, but there was still that um, kind of everyone consideration, right? I, I did want to return a, a healthy, albeit not unicorn kind of return to my shareholders, for example. I did want to make sure that team members got a nice kind of extra for having, you know, been on that journey, contributed to, you know, to its success, for example. Got it. That's helpful for sure. When it comes to the wealth diversification piece, you were seeing the value of Convergio grow and like the percentage of your net worth is like, it's starting to get to be a big part, part of the pie. And so that was part of the trigger. Uh, that's helpful. What did you think the company might be worth? Like it did, uh, before you went through the process of, of marketing it, did you have a sense of what other email marketing platforms are trading at? Any sense of what multiple it might be worth? Yeah, so I think initially, um, I know a couple of brokers in the ecosystem that generally kind of you know, sells you know SaaS solutions, sells software companies, and I think you know my expectation was around that kind of two to three x um, kind of multiple on revenue. Um, mm -hmm assuming you're selling to a financial buyer, right? Because um, financial buyers just generally tend to be more prevalent um, compared to a strategic acquirer, right? Um, but that two to three X kind of, you know, top line revenue was the, I, I think the starting point, at least in terms of shaping my expectations of, if I try to go to market in the quickest, easiest way tomorrow, like that's probably what I would end up getting. Got it. Got it. So where did you go from there? You have this, uh, I, just before we go further, I'd love to know uh, the other key metrics like like churn. What was the churn rate um, and, and, and how fast were you growing? It, you were at 2 million, but so it must've been growing fairly quickly if you started yeah, in 2014. So, yeah, so I think it's sort of growth and I can't remember the exact numbers, John. I think, um, you know, and... Uh, we definitely had 
we exceeded, I, I think, 20% growth year on year, like in the mm-hmm. last like 12 months before selling, I believe. Um, I can't remember how, how much at least. And what was interesting in the growth trajectory as well is we had incredible growth initially in that kind of first, say, two and a half year journey, part of the journey, the first half of the journey. And then it, that growth trajectory changed um, during the second part, right? So I think Meaning that it slowed was down. One. You reached altitude and, and you were growing it, at a slower it, rate. It, it, Exactly right. And I think part of um, that challenge, interestingly enough, was churns. So our churn was never bad. I think like we consistently averaged, you know, with a kind of SMB focused SaaS solution, we had about like averaged out 5% churn, like over our lifetime, um, 5% kind of month, every month, right? Not yep. annual kind of churn. So, but obviously at 5%, um, you're losing half your revenue every year and you need to replenish that, right? So to keep growing, like those numbers, in terms of scaling, like that becomes harder, right? And a big part of that was, I think, and again, acknowledging some of the earlier mistakes we had made in terms of pricing and where we found ourselves in the market is we should have probably charged a little bit more a little bit sooner, for example, because we had many stores, for example, um, you know, both on Shopify and WooCommerce side that they are so small, they start with us um, on our lowest plan, 20 bucks a month, um, but they don't yet have anything to sell. And two, three months later, they churn out because they couldn't sell a single product. And that obviously had nothing to do with the product, them liking the product and finding value in the product. They just had so many other things as a new business that still had kind of that to figure, you know, figure out. So kind of voluntary um, churn versus involuntary for folks who don't know that space. Voluntary is like the customer says, I don't like this platform. I'm going to go to this, you know, an alternative platform. Involuntary is like they go bankrupt. They stop selling online, you know, that kind of stuff. Exactly. So you had a lot of exactly. involuntary churn. It sounds like. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Did you ever try to parse of the 5% a month, what portion was involuntary versus voluntary? We tried. We never had exact data you know, on it. Like, I, I think the involuntary part, it was probably about 20% of our churn. So it, it wasn't the biggest problem that we had to solve. Um, but I said, like, you take 1% off of that, you're suddenly looking at you know, 40, 48% a year kind of churn versus 60%, which already adds 12% you know, to your growth year on year. So let me see if I can summarize where we're at at this stage of the game. So you're you're you had a you had a huge spike of growth right out of the gate, huge success in large part riding the wave of Shopify. The growth starts to tail off a little bit, largely because of the churn. It's very hard to replace the leaky bucket, and so you're at a point where you're thinking, "Man, I, I this is a big part of my wealth," and. And I'm not seeing the trajectory of being able to, you know, double every couple of years here. Like I'm starting to tail off. Maybe now's a good time to sell. Is, am I kind of summarizing a little bit like where your head was at? Yeah. I don't want to put yeah, words totally. in your mouth. So if, if you... Nope. We're good? Yeah. No. Okay. That's... Yeah. That's, I think that's a good summary. Okay. So what's next? Where do you go from here? Um, did you sort of proactively get on your front foot? Did you, like, how did you, how did you go from, what, how does the story evolve from here? Yeah. So um, what ultimately ended up happening was, I'll get my timing right here. Um, in November, 2018, I got invited to speak at um, a microconf in Europe, uh, which was held in Dubrovnik, Croatia. Um, and microconf being a, a community, I've spoken at it a couple of times. Um, you know, microconf being a, a community of mostly bootstrapped or self-funded um, you know, software or technology entrepreneurs, at least. Um, and at the conference, I actually sat down with with Rob Walling, good mate of mine, um, 
told him because Rob had, he, I, mean, I think he, at that stage, he had probably just sold his company Drip, right? Drip. Yeah, I've had him on the show yeah. actually about two months ago. He, it was a great episode, really. Exactly, you know, for, exactly yeah. right. So, 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 so everyone here knows that story, right? So I think at that stage, getting your time right, there was about a year after Rob had sold and he was still working with lead pages, still working on Drip. And I took him through kind of where we were at with Converjo, um, kind of like the challenges that I had, the frustrations that I had, et cetera. And he actually suggested um, at that stage, to chat to his now, you know, a co-founder and partner in Tiny Seed, their investment fund, um, Einar, Einar Volset, um, who kind of also kind of you know acts as a as a broker, does many anyway, is is also a tech entrepreneur, went through Y Combinator himself, um, you know, a couple of years ago. But really does this kind of why his company discretion capital like helps software founders sell their businesses. Um, so Einar and I, I think it was December. 2018, January, kind of, you know, 2019. Essentially kick off the process of at least starting to chat. You know, I know it shapes that expectation again, kind of confirming that, you know, that approximately kind of 3X rule of thumb um, at this stage, but then essentially kind of lays out the process of here's what this would look like. Here's what we need to put together. Here's how we would ultimately take the company to market, right? Um, which then kind of kicks off the process. So to your question there is, it was a proactive exploration for my part to say, like, I don't know how to sell this business. Who do I effectively need to help me get this business sold for, um, I wouldn't say even kind of maximum kind of your value, just in the transaction that actually makes sense um, for me. And what what was... I mean, what's the difference, I guess? So a lot of people hearing that saying, aren't those synonyms like maximize value a deal that makes sense for me? So what was on your list of criteria for a deal that makes sense to you? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess a, a couple of things, right? I mean, I think firstly, from a you know, uh, personal perspective, there are things um, like obviously the, the actual financial you know, package, is that cash or stock, right? What does that look like? Um, you know, what does the earnout look like? If there's anything like that, is it performance related? Um, you know, how, how long do I need to commit to the acquire? So I think there's a couple of things there that's very much about me, right? But then there, for me, there was also other things is I really wanted to sell the product to someone that was going to take both the product and the team further, right? Um, I wanted to sell to someone that was going to do right by my team. Like my my team was incredibly important to me. And I think beyond the product, which I think was top notch, the, the biggest asset we had was the team and the culture that we had. So I wanted someone that would honor that. And that can, again, like take that further, use that as foundation and kind of go further, um, you know, with that. So I think that there are those other things that, you know, ultimately that, that don't necessarily show up in, you know, the ultimate documentation and the agreement, but that are hopes as well. Like the, the literally that kind of, um, you know, the seller acquire fit or seller buyer fit kind of things that was important to me at least. I, I, I was never going to sell to someone just because they gave me a lot of money, but they were going to throw my team under the bus, for example, like that, that was just not an option for me. Not on the table. So from a value perspective, your head was kind of in the two to three times revenue. That was sort of what you were thinking. Cash versus stock. Were you 100% cash? Were you accept, willing to accept some stock? What were you thinking there? Definitely willing to accept some stock. And I, and I ultimately did accept some, some, some stock as well. Um, yeah. Earnout. How'd you feel about an earnout? 
how do I feel about Arnold for the process? No, no, no. How, no yeah. my, my question is before the transaction, yeah. um, how did you feel about it, accepting it or not? Was it something you yeah. knew or were you totally close to it? I mean, I, 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 I guess realistically, I always knew that there was no way to sell a company for a really great valuation, right? Or in a good transaction without like having me as CEO, as founder, being part of that process, right? So to committing some parts of that time to the choir always made sense. And I think just in terms of my personal values, that made sense as well, right? Is like, if my if I'm being true to my kind of, in saying that there are other things except just the transaction that mattered, like I would want to see through that transition at the very, very least. So it was definitely something I was realistic about. I was totally expecting it. Um, I was also entirely hoping that it would be as short or as easy as possible, for example, right? So, um, like I said, I, I I knew that I was not going to get away from from it, right? Unless I totally compromised on like the sales value of the company, right? Um, but I was like, I I had heard many stories at least about earnouts that didn't work as kind of as intended and as hoped, right? So, which kind of skews that perception to the point where, okay, let's just get this as uncomplicated and as short as possible. So Einar, your am I pronouncing his name correctly? Einar? I I, I hope so, because because you're not <laughs> pronouncing it correct, correctly, then I've not been pronouncing it correctly. He's, forever, a, he's, a, he's a Finnish guy, isn't he? Or Norwegian? Norwegian. Norwegian. So Einar, his name has come up before on this show. Rob Wellings talked about Einar before, uh, among other people. So Einar takes you hire Einar and he takes the business to market. What what does he find? Like what what's the reaction? Yeah, so what we ultimately end up doing is um, a couple of things is we compiled a, a one pager anonymously, right? That doesn't mention the company, just mentions some kind of highlights. So so one pager, um, as well as a kind of extensive, I can't even remember what it's called, the acronym was a SIM. Like, SIM, Confidential Information Memorandum. Yeah, that's it, right? Like, yeah. That's, or SIM, that's Confidential that, Information Presentation, they're the same thing. Yeah. So, so we compile those two things. Um, and then we also create a list, probably I think about 150 potential acquirers, like every, everyone from, you know, this is a financial buyer to this is a potential strategic, right? Um, and really not excluding anyone, right? So we didn't include Salesforce on there, for example, right? <laughs> but I mean, Shopify was on the list, for example, even as a listed company at that stage, realistically, like that could have been acquired, right? So really kind of no limits, um, to to that list, um, and then the process kind of ran. Um, we we just started outreach, um, doing our cold outreach, saying here's a company, here's the one pager. Um, if you want more, sign the NDA, and we will send you the sim. Right, and at the time that we started outreach, we like within that initial batch, we get a bite from a company that ultimately ended up, ended up budding, and we also got inbound interest from campaign monitors um, and campaign monitor is owned by um, inside partners, private equity firm. Um, so we got inbound kind of ping from the private equity firm saying, would you be interested in chatting? And we had kind of pinged someone else at campaign monitor at that stage. So, and those two are then the companies that, you know, were ultimately kind of in, in the budding process to acquire, you know, Converjo and ended up being kind of where I had most of spent most of my time, in terms of conversations. But even with that, like we kept doing outreach and I had a few other conversations 
as well that even though the the you know conversations were progressing with campaign monitor and this kind of the other company that bid for us um like i still had other conversations as well so we ultimately i think i think we had serious interest from about six different so companies in the end so you started with 150 on the long list and then two inbound serious inquiries and then another four relatively serious kind of conversations yeah exactly got it how what does a i've got two questions about about that first what does a bite feel like like a fisherman when when you feel a bite like it's a, it's an immediate tug on the on the on the rod and you're like okay that was a bite what is a bite in this process feel like what is that how do you know it's a bite Whew. um well i think um I think there's some sensibility to it, right? So like what I can, you know, kind of, an, and this is not to um, kind of blow the smoke up, up you know, campaign monitor's ass um, for lack of better words, right? But the fact of the matter is um, w- when they came in, so I can describe this bite, right? When they came in, it, it was immediately a hell yes moment for me. Firstly, because, you know, way back when I started in software with WeThemes, you know, alongside Basecamp, like one of the kind of the aspirational companies that were out there was Campaign Monitor. I've been a user for like, I think Campaign Monitor itself is 17, 18 years old this year. I've been a user for much of that, right? So I had huge brand affinity, firstly, right? Um, that's the first part of it. The second part but of it my is- question, But my question the, is more about, less about what, why you react the way you do. I, I'd be curious. I think people would be curious to know like in a sports context, if you are being recruited by a, a team, there's all sorts of different ways that you can get recruited. Everything from like the assistant coach sends you a generic email, which is not a good sign, to like the head coach coming to your town to watch you play baseball, as an example, in a baseball context or rugby in your in your example. So what does it feel like? Like what is a what is a buying signal for in this process that sounds real as opposed to just superficial? What is, yeah. like, what, what, what was it in the campaign monitor? Yeah, and, and that's a good question. And I'll go back to the campaign monitor example there, right? So beyond that brand affinity then, I think the other parts of it was the fact that um, this was a senior kind of person at the private equity firm, right? So it wasn't just, and I say just a junior analyst, obviously there are many, like all analysts have to start somewhere, right? And I didn't mean to demean that, but if it's a, if it's an analyst generally, like the decision hasn't been made, right? So I think that's the first part. Like the person reaching out is, is likely involved in the decision, whether they're the final decision maker, maybe not, but they are probably involved in the decision, right? At a high level. Um, and that was true for, everyone that we spoke to, right? So I think that's the first part of it. And the second part is that when I mentioned sensibility kind of check or sense check to it, which was, you know, if this company were to buy us, like what would they do with us, right? Could we even like, without asking them, without them telling us, could we actually see how this would play out, right? So, um, you know, with Campaign Monitor, this was obvious. Like we knew that within kind of their product, their product wasn't perfectly suited to e-commerce. Like whilst e-commerce merchants could use it, this immediately felt like, oh, this could be a great fit. Yes. So I think there is that bit to it where it's just like logically asking yourself, you know, are they literally just fishing around, right? Or is there a player, right? And, and can we kind of, you know, put some parts of the narrative together without having 
you know, them sell us on it. So it sounds like I'm, I'm going to kind of reverse engineer this on your list of 150 potential acquirers. There were some where the strategic fit was dubious or questionable, not dubious, but less strong than it was with uh, campaign mortar. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly right. So, I mean, some of them, um, it would be more of a stretch, right? I mean, yeah. for example, I, ma- I mentioned Shopify. You know, could be a competitor. Oh, it could be a you know, potential comp- you know, acquirer at that stage. Realistically, I knew that this would be a stretch for them, right? You know, purely because they, they there's other email marketing tools in the ecosystem. It would send the wrong signal to those, etc. Right. So, there's a bit of that kind of almost a sniff test that says, you know, this it's possible but unlikely, right? And I think in different kind of scenarios, like they, you have to have that bit of a sniff test there. It's like, can you actually see this working post-acquisition? I guess so. Some people listening to this are saying, okay, I, I get the sniff test and I get the strategic fit. So isn't the risk quite high in going to such a big list, 150 names, if you know that 50 of them are probably long shots? You know, there's some people saying, why would you go to people, risk the disruption, risk the potential that your competitors and your customers are going to find out uh, when you kind of know there are long shot anyways? Like, do you know what I'm asking? Is there, yeah. some people are probably asking themselves that question. How do you answer? Yeah, it was, honestly, it was, that was never a concern, John. Like, I, like, I don't think there's anything in our sim that would have, um, that could have helped or get, you know, given a competitor a leg up to compete against us, for example, like you know, knowing what our churn is or knowing what our growth rate is, like, eh, like I, I don't think that's an issue, right? And like, I would also, again, like this is unvalidated, but if I sent that document to our customers and I said, here's our financial performance, I also don't think they would have acted or made any other decision Right in that regard, I either churn or say, "Hey, like you guys are so profitable, like why don't you know you can charge us less?" Kind of thing, right? So I don't think that there was any of those that information in there, and maybe like part of that mentality was just ingrained. And you know, when we built with Teams WooCommerce, being open source, um, we knew always knew that people could literally buy our product, and then they could fork it, i.e., they could copy it. And they could rebrand it as their own and then they can resell it, right? Like that's what open source licensing allows you to do. And I think with that in mind, like the, this idea of competition just felt um, and putting information out there feels counterintuitive to me. I think in many things in business, like you, you have to be not stupid, but somewhat vulnerable at least about like, how do you actually have a conversation if you're not going to add any information to that conversation? How, how are you going to, start the conversation if you're not willing to take the first steps. Got it. What was the most surprising thing you were asked prior to getting a letter of intent from Convergio and, and the other the other guys? Um, what was the most surprising thing you were asked during this process of courting these potential acquirers? Um, oh, I think... Um, Probably in the realm of having a remote team. So we were remote and distributed. Um, and I still like getting questions about how is this even viable to build a significant business with a remote distributed team? Um, like that at least surprises me, right? Because I, I come from a place where having built two businesses that have been remote and distributed, um, you know, being amongst like 
now having incredible examples of really big businesses that are remote, fully remote and distributed as well. Shopify even, is pretty remote these days. <laughs> exactly right. But I mean, even kind of pre-pandemic, right? Because um, we still sold pre-pandemic, right? There, there were still examples, you know, automatic, uh, GitLab, Envision, like, you know, thousand people plus companies that are fully remote. So I think... Um, like that, that was always a surprise to me that this, this kind of, you know, why, like I almost to the extent where I, I don't really actually understand the question. Like it's, it's just a team. We've obviously proven that we can work together. Like what's the matter. That's really interesting. What's your best tip for people who are new to working remotely? Uh, Probably, and I'll steal this from um, from a friend of mine, Jason Cohen, who's the founder um, of of WP Engine. And and Jason, I, I contend onto this late um, in the sense that I don't think with WooCommerce we got this right. But then I was very proactive and kind of you know conscious of this with Converjo. But Jason once said that you know every every team, every company has a culture, whether you know it or not. And like just that notion of like culture is ultimately the way we work together. And you might just be uh, might as well be explicit about it. So truly thinking through kind of, you know, what are your values as a team? How does that kind of relate to the culture that we create, the way that we work, the way we think about things? I think that's crucially important because if you, like if you're in physically the same space, like, and you can't literally kind of manage by kind of your bums and seats and kind of visibility, I think the only way to keep a team together is by keeping them close to those values, keeping them within that culture, really, because that's the thing that that those shared values are the things that connects people and drives them forward to collaborate and do do good work. Got it. So let's go back to the sale. So you're thinking two to three times is probably reasonable. You're getting some interest, probably quite a bit of interest. It sounds mm -hmm. like. What was your first round of letters of intent? How many did you get, and what was the sort of valuation range? Yeah, so, um, so, so we the first there LOIs that we got there, um, and again we we had two butters, who you know from whom we got LOIs, right? Campaign monitor being one of them, um, and that first range was pretty accurate. Was was at the you know approximately that kind of three x kind of revenue range. What was your reaction to that? What was the reaction? I mean, I guess it felt it, it felt good, right? I mean, it, to, I think the first reaction that kind of gut feel is, um, you know, it validates that we've built something that's worth something to someone else, right? That they're, they're willing to pay significant money in terms of, you know, at least in absolute terms, right? Um, so there's a sense of relief in that, right? And, and just being validated. And then I think the second part of it kind of is, kind of almost immediately afterwards, which is, Okay, now like let's start negotiating, kind of thing, right? So like let, let, let's see, kind of you know what we can now do, because this is only the starting point. And I think at least the fact that I understood that we were gonna run a process and we were gonna have um, you know multiple people hopefully bidding for the company, I knew that we were hopefully gonna get that kind of you know, the ultimate price up. Um, and interesting enough, and I'll, and I'll share this only because well, I've mentioned Dan earlier, and I know he's been on your show as well. Um, I was actually, whilst negotiating, um, at some point, I was at one of Dan's you know, SAS Academy conferences. This is Dan and, Martell you're referring to. I can't exactly. remember what episode of uh, yeah. Built to Sell Radio he was, but you can Google Dan Martell Built to Sell yeah. Radio and go back and listen to it if you want. Exactly. So, 
So I was at one of Dan's um, SaaS Academy um, conferences whilst I was negotiating and he had invited um, someone, a founder, CEO who runs email marketing automation, kind of near tool, much bigger than Convergio, don't know how much, but they were on our list of acquirers as well. And um, I mean, similar to the kind of process that I ran with Einar, like Dan as my kind of business coach at that stage, like he had proposed something very similar, like you have to get multiple people involved in the process. And I actually go up like in a break, I go up to Dan and I said, listen, you're like, I, I'm not going to do this if you're not okay with this, it's your conference after all. But that founder, um, I totally going to go up to him and I'm just going to say, you know, say whatever, you know, his name is Pete. Say, you know, Pete, um, we're in the process of, you know, you know, chatting to acquirers for Convergio, would you be interested? And I literally walked into, you know, walked into him um, whilst he was in the kind of hotel lobby just on his way out. And I, and I actually did that, right? Which I'm not kind of an extrovert to that extent. I, I'm not a salesperson either, but that's literally the, I think me understanding that process and understanding that a key part of, getting the best deal possible was to get as many people engaged in the bidding process as possible. So, so was Pete come, a third offer or was he? Uh, he, he, he wasn't interested. He, he said, fire over the sim and you'll have a look. And like, like, there wasn't any interest in follow-up after that. But like, that's the extent, like I literally kind of, you know, the, the outreach wasn't just kind of us sending emails and kind of, you know, spraying and praying. Like I coincidentally, right. But I was at a conference and I actually went up to a potential acquirer in person. Right. So let me get this straight. So you've got two offers. So it's not like you've got 20 offers, but you got two. So better than one, but it's yeah. not 20. Right. So I'm get. so let me see how you play this. Cause on one hand, both offers, it sounds like, was there much difference between the two or were they both in and around that kind of three times top line? So they kept following, in terms of total valuation, they kept following each other. Um, I guess the, you know, as, as context as well, um, you know, Campaign Monitor being a truly strategic buyer in that sense, i.e. they own other email software kind of properties, right? Um, and within their portfolio, the other company was a holding company um, so slightly different kind of you know prospect, and I think the biggest change and difference, except for variation at that stage, between the two was the fact that in the holding company I would have still held a significant stake of Convergio myself, um, significant minority at least. So they would have acquired a, a majority, but I would have had a significant um, kind of minority still. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Versus Convergio was so it sounds like a, a, a truly financial buyer in in the hold co where you were going to roll some equity into the deal and then conversion was more of a strategic acquirer yeah you got it got it but i guess my point was some people who would who would get offers that met their expectations because it sounds like you were expecting two to three in that space and you that's kind of what you got in the first round some people would be like fantastic i got my number <laughs> you know like where do I sign the document? That wasn't your reaction. So why did you feel like why did you feel there was more value to capture? Yeah, I guess um, just faith in the system, right? Um, I think having a system or a process proposed by someone like Einar, right, who was a recommendation from you know Rob, who's a friend who I've known for ages, like that has gravitas, right? I think that's the first thing. Having that process effectively kind of you know vetted by, you know, someone like Dan Martel, who's sold, I think Dan has sold three of his companies as well, right? Um, and has advised many, many other SaaS founders. So both saying, Dan and Einar are saying, 
Okay, let's go. Don't don't accept the first number. <laughs> exactly right. So like, don't accept the first number. Negotiate, and that's why you have multiple people in that kind of bidding process. So I think at that stage, like, uh, you maybe it's ignorance, maybe it's somewhat just kind of you know, youthfulness almost. Um, but it is trust in that system, right? Uh, trust in that process. Trust that if you do this and you do this well, there is at least some upside. Like knowing, like, can you double the first offer? Don't know, right? Is it a 5% increase? Don't know. But there is at least this belief that the first offer is not the last offer. And so what what happened next? Yeah, so I think that the, the best thing um, that ultimately ended up happening, um, and without incriminating myself here, but the thing that, that Einar, um, incriminating and not in a criminal manner, um, but Einar always told me that, you know, AD, when you go on this call and you speak to these potential acquirers, um, you can speak to them about anything, right? Speak to them about your love of wine, if that's what they want to kind of you know, to chat to you about, right? The only thing you're not allowed to ever speak to them about is numbers, right? Like speak to them about the company numbers, never about valuation. If they ask about valuation, tell them, well, they have to talk to Einar about that. Um, so after you know, every call, I actually just went back to Einar and I said, Listen, you know, this is this is where we got. This is what we chatted about, and he said, "Okay, good." And then he went off and he had separate conversations, um, you know, with the acquirer. So, so I actually come to think of it now, and now that you asked that, I don't have much visibility into how those conversations went. I don't know, like, whether I know or just said, "Listen, you know, guys, like, you have to up this by X, right?" Or like, I, I, I was just not involved in that part of the conversation. Were you asked about valuation? By either the two bidders? Yeah, all, uh, by those and others that were interested. How would it be couched? For, what kind of questions would they ask you? I think like, you know, well, literally just like, you know, Eddie, how do we, like, at what kind of number did we get a deal done here, right? Because I think- How would you answer um, that? I, I would just like, in the same way that I just answered you, right? Which is, hey guys, like the, the deal, like, I, I would always be lighthearted about, right? And I would tell the story. I would say, listen, you're, I know it for, 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 for forbid me, forbids me to speak about validation. You'll have to chat to him about it, right? And I would just do this that as a, just downplay it and say, there's Einar, like chat to him. But, I'm not and did they push you? And they're like, 80, Einar works for you, doesn't he? Yeah. And I think the reason um, that they kind of respect that is they also knew everyone involved in the process knew we were running a process. So they kind of, I think, and I think if you sell a business, you can totally overplay your hand in this, but as a seller, you have the asset that someone else wants. So, and if you have multiple people involved, they don't necessarily know who the other bidders are or to what extent they want this asset. And I think thus you as the seller, you have some leeway to impose some rules of the game, like some rules of engagement. And one of our rules of engagement was just that, you know, yes, this is my company. Yes, this is ultimately going to be kind of, you know, my decision, but you need to chat to, you know, Einar about valuation. And I, like, we never got pushed back on that at least. Like, yeah. Did you, did Einar forbid you to talk about the other material deal points like earnout? Uh, stock versus cash. Were they all in the? You got to talk to Einar bucket, or were, <laughs> or were you no, know those, I mean? yeah, no. So those things um, were, and, and, and much of that we negotiated after LOI at least. Um, so the LOI I think was light on those kinds of details. Um, 
but those were details that I like, I, I was part of those discussions. Got it. Got it. So what happened to the offers? I mean, were you able to get them up at all or what was the final? Yeah. So from, from first LOI to, to final LOI, we got about 35, just a little more than 35% higher. So running wow. the process, you know, created a lot of extra value. That's incredible. Congratulations. Thanks. That's amazing. Good for you. It's life-changing money in, in, in the grand scheme of things to, that, that, uh, that you were. What, what did you, how did you celebrate? Was there a trophy? Did you buy a new house? Uh, uh, I mean, this is, this is a big deal. Yeah, so um, we, initially as a family, we didn't celebrate um, by buying things. I think the thing that we were, it was interesting, at least given hindsight now, what we did decide to do was um, probably now about three years ago, 2018, um, I'd never been on a cruise at all. And we did a, a Disney cruise in, uh, in the Mediterranean with the kids. And I, I remember back then, like my wife sold me on the idea and or convinced me that we should do it. And I was like, I'm not that convinced. Like my sea legs aren't like it's 50, 50, firstly, secondly, can I handle Mickey mouse for a whole week? Um, and at that stage, my boys were four and seven and, um, it ended up being a magical week for us as a family. So what we did, you know, kind of post, um, you know, post acquisition is we committed, uh, to taking my whole extended family side, but two younger sisters, my and my parents um, and one of my sisters also has two young young girls and we committed to taking the whole family on a Disney cruise which should have been June last year um, but then pandemic hit so we never did that um, unfortunately and at this stage it's still you know TBC whether like we can still do that what ended up happening though John is um, I don't think and I, again I don't want to be disingenuous about this um, I don't think my wife and I are flashy kind of people at all we have a lovely home we live in a kind of beautiful, it's called a polo estate, polo estate, just kind of your golf estate um, in the winelands of Cape Town. What we ended up doing um, is shortly after, um, and just before pandemic as well, we took we took transfer of a, of a beach house just before South Africa went into our first lockdown. Um, and many people, like many people know buying a holiday home is probably the worst financial kind of decision you can ever make, right? Like there's no financial return on that unless you get a ridiculous buyer coming in, offering you silly money for it. But we bought a house on the beach and um, I don't know whether it's just a year that we had, but as a family, we spent a lot of time together and it's probably been one of the best purchases. Like this, you know, it's not even just the money part, but really just the best thing that I've like we've added to our life in a long time. So and and that would not have been possible had the acquisition not occurred. So I guess as I said that came a couple of months after the acquisition, kind of. Um, but that's probably a, a great, I think, memento um, and a physical memento as well of you know kind of building a business and and, and selling it for kind of life changing money. I love that. I, I'm a huge fan of having a physical. Uh, reward trophy because i think you work so hard and it is in your case what a wonderful physical memory of of what you've contributed because you enjoy it with your family all the time i think that's i think that's really sage um this has been incredible i i am uh 
I'm grateful. I should ask you, I feel like that was like the, um, uh, the disingenuous close to use your word. <laughs> Quick question I didn't ask that I should have. Related to the final deal, how did you net out on some of the other deal points like earn out, stock versus cash? Like what, what can you share with us about that stuff? Yeah, so I, I'm fortunate in the sense that um, I had a, a simple earnout that um, that was not uh, performance related, at least, um, that required me to, to stay with uh, Campaign Monitor for a year, you know, post-close. Um, and I ultimately end up left, you know, kind of leaving about 14 months after after closing. So um, I think that I, I, I would say I was fortunate and I'm really grateful um, for kind of, I think the way Campaign Monitor conducted themselves as a acquirer in that sense, I think it was, you know, kind of mostly very founder friendly. I've heard much, much worse. Let me say that. Like, you know, um, I don't think everything, for example, worked out as all of us had hoped or planned at least, right? Um, but really in terms of how, and again, this is not me blowing smoke at their ass, but how they treated me as a founder selling a business, um, like, I think, there's a lot to be said about that. It was kind of very honorable um, to that extent. And, you know, to that, I think, you know, earnout, my earnout was not a nightmare as I've heard from, you know, many other founders. Let me get this straight. So your earnout was tied simply to your employment. Like you agreed to stay on for a period of time. And if you agreed, if you met that threshold that you got your extra tranche or whatever. Exactly, exactly. Wow. And then what about stock versus cash? Yeah, so my deal was about half half um, in that sense, um, and I still and I still have the the stock that I have. I like I'm still holding that. And that's a privately held company, is that correct? Is there uh, any yes. liquidity on that stock? Like, how, how would that stock become liquid for you? Uh, hopefully, hopefully, in future it becomes uh, it becomes liquid. I mean, I guess um, I like I'm not super familiar with how this kind of works, right? But the whole kind of the Greater Campaign Motor Group is is held by, um, or the majority owner at least is uh, Inside Partners, is a private equity firm. Um, so I believe that the kind of liquidity is, it's always on the horizon, right? What that horizon kind of looks like, um, I don't know, right? But I think that is that is the hope that, you know, either there is a sale there, outright sale, um, and there's liquidity there, or that there is some opportunity for some secondary sale of some sorts. Do you have any put options? Meaning, are, are is do you have any rights to to put your shares to the private equity group and say like I, I want out, like I want fully out? Is is that an option at all? Uh, it is an option to the extent that I can negotiate that, but there's no there's no kind of you know agreed upon option you know put option in place there. Got it. Got it. Okay, great. Um, what are you doing now? <laughs> like, yeah. where can be, you know, like, where, like, I'm sure you're going to want to, people are going to want to reach out to you. So uh, tell me a little bit about the book and, and, and where, you know, where people can reach you. Yeah. So I, I mean, just as we we're recording this, John, um, a couple of weeks ago, I released my new book. It's called Life Profitability, The New Measure of Entrepreneurial Success. Eddie, you um, got to do that slow. You got to do it slowly because I didn't <laughs> understand it. Say the name of the book again. Yeah. You, by, by the way, my wife constantly tells me, speak slower. So, <laughs> well, especially because I mean, the accent is unique to my ear. And then you're yeah. like speaking really quickly. And I'm like, whoa, what was that? So go slowly yeah. one more time. Uh, 
I'll go slowly. So the book is called Life Profitability, The New Measure of Entrepreneurial Success. Um, and the kind of core idea of the book, very much based on my journey with Convergio. Um, and this, I think the, the mission of building a business that's not just financially profitable in the narrow sense of the word, but truly kind of life profitable in the more kind of broader, diverse, holistic sense of the word. So managed to release the book a couple of weeks ago, became an Amazon bestseller within 48 hours, which was incredible. Um, thank you. Um, and that was a kind of process. Like I started working on the book shortly after selling to Campaign Monitor, worked on it as a kind of your nights and weekends, you know, project with, with the publishing team. So, um, that's been exciting kind of, you know, in, in the, in the recent past. And then I have also just kind of, you know, started up uh, building a new software, kind of new SaaS company, new software um, for all my sins. It's called Cogsy. Um, and we, you know, staying in the kind of, you know, the, the realm of e-commerce, um, you know, Cogsy helps e-commerce brands make better, you know, purchasing, smarter purchasing decisions for the inventory, ultimately helping them optimize their working capital. So just gone through, raising a, a small pre-seed round of funding um, and getting the first version into beta customers' hands. So that's called Cogsy. So that's that's very exciting. Well, for anyone that wants to follow um, follow what I'm doing, by the way, um, the best place to go to is ad.me. That's my blog, ad.me. Um, and I think what is interesting there is I'm, I'm building Cogsy in public, which means I'm sharing the behind the scenes things of what's going on and crucially, like many other you know, entrepreneurs in, in my space at least do this as well. What I actually hope to do is I hope to create some accountability where readers would call me on my bullshit when I'm doing these things and I'm working too hard and I'm not doing this in a life profitable way. Because I think I would, like many of the ideas that I have, like they are learnings in hindsight. And I now want to put it to practice in a new business and kind of you know, go from you know, building Convergio in a way um, and now doing that better with Cogsy and doing it in a way I said that is truly life profitable. Awesome. Life profitability is the name of the book. That's, that's it. Cogsy, the name of the company. AD, it was a great pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me, John. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.